What's going on? It's Joey Thurman, and welcome to season three of the Fad or Future podcast. Yeah, I made it three seasons. What's different about this season? Well, yes, I'm still bringing you the world's top experts in fitness, nutrition, mental health, and more, but I'm also talking about my own personal struggles. I get deeper this season because we can all use a little bit of relatability. So I hope you stick with me, you enjoy this season, and thank you for being here. And as always, you get to decide, is it a fad or is it a future? Because after all, we don't want to be fatties, F-A-D-D-Y. Hashtag don't be a fatty. Metabolic autophagy seem land what's up man thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me and yeah glad to, glad to speak with you <laughs> so i mean i i just mentioned one of your books but you how many books do you have uh well uh in total i would say there's like eight or seven but uh like the four four are the main ones or the kind of that are i consider more like more yeah unique and uh really let's say more in-depth than other ones so yeah four or four to eight <laughs> <laughs> seven eight maybe four you got a lot of books i mean the the one that we're going to talk about mainly this is 700 what was it? it was like 700 it's like a textbook which is great because most books that you see is about 272 i mean versus like one that i got here is i mean it's like half the size so it's like 272 pages or something so why write such an in-depth book hmm. <laughs> well uh, that's a good question and uh well, I personally just, you know, enjoy the writing process and uh, I think I also have like a lot of write about uh, kind of information to share with other people and my own, uh, let's say, some uh, perspectives on some topics. The reason why I wrote like metabolic autophagy per se uh, had to do with uh, just as, you know, the autophagy process, it got received like a Nobel Prize in uh, 2013 and it, it's related to, let's say, anti-aging and longevity in the body. Uh, but, you know, in, in online, on the internet, on YouTube, you also see a lot of people just, you know, missing, not really understanding how it works and, you know, just uh, telling different lies or not lies, but, you know, mistruths or uh, some uh, flawed, flawed uh, information about it. So I just wanted to have this uh, book about it that uh, kind of, you know, looks at actually what the, what is, what, what the research says about it, uh, how does it work, uh, what are the benefits, what are the like, negative side effects, uh, how do you actually implement it into your uh, everyday life on a practical level, and yeah, just give like a, a holistic uh, or a wise, you know, just a broad overview about the, the entire topic. Yeah, I mean, obviously nowadays with the internet, people get a little tidbit of information and they do a 30 second video to get the views and likes and comments and share, which, which is great. It's, it has its time and place, but often they're not reading into the research and seeing what it specifically says, or even trying it on themselves. Because I think if somebody mm -hmm. truly tries it on themselves, like anecdotal evidence is still evidence. And then eventually right. yeah, there might be scientific studies around things like biohackers and, and everybody's been trying things throughout the years. Like eventually like, Oh, maybe we should do a study around this. And then it's valid. Sometimes it's not. Yeah. Sometimes it, it's just, you know, in your head and placebo, but placebo, hell, it makes me feel better. And it doesn't have scientific evidence. At least it makes it feel better. Like the, the mind is a powerful <laughs> thing. Right. So um, yeah. I think we get lost in the weeds there. So what is autophagy and specifically, and you put your own definition around it of metabolic autophagy. Mm. Yeah. So like I mentioned that, you know, autophagy 
is uh, this, uh, let's say, in, it's, it's like an intracellular process of uh, recycling different old uh, material and this junk and debris that accumulates there because of like aging, because of bad uh, lifestyle habits, and uh, it, as well as like, you know, environmental pollution and the stressors, they all you know, accumulate this uh, junk inside the cells. And autophagy is just this uh, process uh, by which the body kind of eliminates that. And uh, the uh, word is, you know, it's trans translates into like self-eating uh, literally so yeah your your cells are basically being uh, recycled and uh, cleaned out and uh, the word metabolic is uh, just refers to uh, met the metabolism uh, so uh, everything that is you know regulates your energy production uh, re regulates digestion regulates you know hormone production all those things are kind of mediated through the metabolism mm -hmm. and uh, the metabolic ecology is just uh, let's say of a way of uh, optimizing and uh, activating the process of autology with uh, things related to the metabolism. Yeah, and so a lot of people say uh, autophagy is getting rid of the zombie cells. I mean, not necessarily the scientific term, but it, it, that's what's happening, right? We're just getting rid of the, kind of these old damaged cells mm. that are not really good for us anymore, correct? Yeah, well, it's it's actually not really killing off the entire cells, only like just the parts of it. Uh, the uh, process of like destroying the cells themselves is called apoptosis, which is almost like a, it's a programmed cell death. And it's all, the apoptosis and autophagy, they are like very similar, uh, but autophagy itself is just inside the cell of uh, eliminating all the, you know, trillions of uh, different particles inside the cell, like the mitochondria, uh, some other debris and uh, that sort of thing. Interesting. So if we're, you know, basically recycling or making these cells healthier, we're going to be healthier from the inside out, right? So it's going to help with the aging process and all yeah. sorts of different things. I mean, on a cellular level, we take care of our cells, our body and mind, and everything's going to feel so much better, correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the uh, yeah, the, one of the hallmarks of aging is, let's say, uh, this um, increased damage to the mitochondria or mitochondrial damage. And uh, as a result of that, you know, the mitochondria produce energy for us. And uh, as a result of that, your body will also, you know, deteriorate. And uh, with age, you know, you also, yeah, just accumulate all these uh, zombie cells as well. And uh, other, let's say, DNA alterations happen and uh, some other things. So, uh, yeah, the process of autology at least is going to um, at least have a, like a preventive effect on uh, mitigating some of the uh, negative side effects that do uh, happen with aging. Mm -hmm. but, but it also has like some other... You know important uh, effects uh, besides that like autophagy is also involved in the immune system uh it's also involved in like uh, burning fat burning um, lipids triglycerides uh, as well as like uh, helping with uh, insulin resistance uh even like in the brain it helps to like clear out the plaque uh, that is associated with neurodegeneration so yeah it's uh, actually not just uh, this anti-aging thing uh, but it also is uh, quite uh, let's say central to just a healthy living so uh, in some mice some like mice studies uh, when uh, th these mice are basically genetically modified in a way that they are, their autophagy process is blocked then uh, they're not gonna they're gonna like accelerate uh, the aging process and they're not gonna live longer even if they are put under calorie restriction so calorie restriction is uh, one of the only ways we know how to like extend lifespan uh, in uh, other species and if the uh, those mice don't have autophagy activated even if they are under calorie restriction then they're not going to live longer whereas if they do have the autophagy process activated then they do see those uh, life extension benefits so it kind of has to it, it also kind of tells you a little bit you know that it's not necessarily always like the calorie restriction that is um, you know doing those effects of longevity it's also maybe the autophagy or the other underlying mechanisms that happen a like calorie restriction does uh, promotes autophagy itself as well but you know if you block it 
with some like artificial means, then uh, you may not uh, see the desired uh, effects. Yeah, because a lot of people in longevity experts really, you know, hone in, I can't remember the exact percentage, like 10 or 15%, you know, calorie restriction throughout your entire life. And you can live to 150, mm. what we you know, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> right. So what would you say uh, about that? Just having complete calorie restriction throughout your entire life, because then we're, we're not going to be able to add enough muscle tissue. And if we get older, we fall, we break a hip and then, you know, yeah. you know cascading of events. So uh, what would be the rebuttal for people for for you? I mean, I know that you you like adding muscle tissue and 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 eating and you know um, having protein and all that sort of stuff. So which I, I want to get into that, but you know what would the, be be the rebuttal to you know living in a constant calorie restriction? Yeah, well, you know it has its own like benefits and the downsides. So um, you know theoretically you would maybe see like. Um, you would like slow down the process of your biological aging if you restrict your calories uh, for the rest of your life, you know, but uh, at the same time, it's also, uh, we don't really have actual uh, human studies to prove it. So, you know, at, at the very best, you don't want to be overeating calories all the time, so to say, like being on this, you know, obesogenic diet, uh, that is definitely like bad, but uh, how many calories do you actually need to reduce to see like this longevity benefits? It's, you know, not really known. And of course, there are some other factors that also have to be taken into account, like, like you said, uh, you need like, you know, some amount of calories to build muscle and strength. And if you are becoming frail from eating too little calories and not uh, being able to put on muscle, then that actually increases your risk of other diseases like osteoporosis and uh, metabolic syndrome. So yeah, it's, you know, I personally think that, you know, uh, at least um, if like we were talking about, you know, quality of life, then, uh, you know, strength training, building muscle is definitely uh, much more superior to calorie restriction mm -hmm. because, you know, with calorie restriction, you also feel tired all the time. You're cold, you're uh, having hormonal issues, uh, maybe shivering and that sort of thing. So it doesn't really sound uh, very appealing for most people to, let's say, do. So if you tell them that you need to be eating uh, 30, 30 or 20% less calories for the rest of your life, then they don't really want to hear about it. And uh, <laughs> chances are they're going to, you know, binge uh, more often than not and kind of uh, break the cycle. So I think, you know, yeah, like at, at the very best, you don't want to be overeating and getting fat and getting obese and uh, maintaining some uh, somewhat of a calorie deficit every once in a while, maybe, you know, on some days and, you know, cutting down for summer, that's already going to probably give you uh, the majority of results. Mm. Yeah, interesting, because I, I think there's a term that throw, they throw around called sarcopenic obesity, right, where you start losing mm. that uh, muscle tissue and you become more frail. So it, yeah. let's say we're looking at, you know, obviously living in a, a calorie deprivation. I, I mean, I four to sometimes five, 6,000 calories a day. So it doesn't sound great for me, but I've done things like I've done a five day complete water fast where I had some coffee and green mm -hmm. tea and electrolytes or, or, you know, time restricted feeding or intermittent fasting, whatever terminology you want to put behind it. Is there anything where we can still get those benefits of the calorie restriction with still, you know, maybe closing down the feeding window? What have you found? Yeah, well, actually uh, they do think that, um, the uh, intermittent fasting or this time-restricted eating uh, mimics a lot of the same effects that you get from calorie restriction uh, because they kind of uh, work in the same pathways. And uh, intermittent fasting, when you're fasting, when you're not eating any calories at all, then uh, that is almost like a magnified effect uh, on the calorie restriction because you're turning on autophagy even more so than we do with calorie restriction. And you also upregulate the other pathways and, and vice versa, you downregulate the uh let's say the the feeding pathways like insulin igf1 and mTOR and those things those go way more down uh, with fasting than they do with calorie restriction mm. so uh yeah i do think that if you're doing intermittent fasting 
then you, uh, you can at least sidestep some of the uh, requirements for this, uh, such a like a severe calorie restriction. And uh, theoretically, you could even eat at your maintenance calories and still see those the same effects uh, as long as you're you know, eating in a certain time frame. Even like in studies on the mice, on time-restricted eating, uh, even if the mice is eating, uh, let's say, the same bad diet of like, you know, junk food and uh, extra calories, they do see like improvement in their biomarkers as long as they're doing some form of time-restricted eating uh, compared to those mice who don't do it and eat the same uh, crappy diet. So yeah, at least I, th I, do, th I do think that uh, interval fasting is uh, one way of uh, mimicking the effects of calorie restriction as well as like exercise itself is also, uh, you know, turns on all these longevity pathways in the body and causes this uh, beneficial stress. Yeah. So what about intermittent fasting and what about, um, what do you think about multiple day fasts every now and then or 24 hour fasts or 72 hours or, or five days? Uh, what have you found in the research uh, as far as that's correlating between intermittent fasting or calorie restriction or uh, what are the benefits or the, the negatives behind that? Yeah, well, uh, extended fasting is uh, then like a step beyond the regular intermittent fasting. So um, if you haven't eaten, let's say for three days, uh, then you, you do see uh, an even higher expression of these longevity pathways and uh, downregulation of the growth pathways. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, it, it can definitely um, be a good thing every once in a while. Uh, but you know, there is also yeah, this, um, the uh, point of diminishing returns. So, you know, from my own opinion, I think that Fasting any longer than like three to five days is probably um, not going to give you like any additional benefits. It's not just you're just going to start to lose a muscle tissue. Uh, you do lose a bunch of weight, but, you know, most of it is going to come from a muscle tissue. Mm -hmm. And uh, you you also have like this uh, down regulation of the thyroid. Your metabolic rate goes down uh, because of, you know, being in energy restriction. So like your life after breaking the fast is going to be that much more difficult. So, yeah, I personally think that. You know, most people don't really need to fast any longer than three to five days uh, unless they are like, let's say, super obese and uh, very overweight. And then they can just, you know, fast uh, for longer just by virtue of having uh, that much calories uh, with them. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, people who are relatively lean, especially those who exercise as well and uh, they're fit, then they actually may start to get more negatives. They, you know, lose muscle mass, they uh, lose performance, they feel worse, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it depends on the person. But uh, yeah, like I personally tried to have a, maybe like a 48 hour or 38 or a 72 hour fast, uh, maybe like a few times a year, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not like really, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not like uh, that uh, worried about it. So I like if I, I don't have the mi mindset that if I don't do it, then I don't uh, benefit my longevity. I'm already benefiting my longevity by doing daily intermittent fasting and exercising and eating a clean diet. Yeah. So um, how would somebody, if they're going to do, you know, three, four days, what, what is your recommendation for them? Is it, you know, once every quarter or do they, is it okay for them to do, I mean, non, non calories, they have to hit a certain amount, maybe a little bit of fat. Like, is there anything that you found that can help people get through that? So a lot of people are interested in doing this, but I think a lot of people mm -hmm. do it wrong. Um, right. What have you found that helps you? Yeah. Well, uh, I personally, um, Usually I will just uh, drink like water, coffees and uh, tea. So these are zero calorie beverages. They do help to um, suppress the appetite and almost like give you a bit more energy as well. Uh, some people uh, prefer to, or some people, you know, get very hungry and they need something, you know, that um, fills their stomach a little bit. So they may, you know, opt in for something like a bone broth or this, um, you know, MCT oil coffee that uh, a little bit of fat in it. And this, you know, fat, uh, it doesn't really stop these uh, benefits uh, of the fasting. 
because your like insulin levels and the blood sugar levels they still uh, stay uh, relatively low and you still you do maintain this uh, ketosis and fat burning state so you know in some amounts that's fine and if it does help you to let's say uh, get through the fast then i think you know it, it can be worth it yeah. um and even then uh, there's actually like these uh, fasting mimicking diet uh, where uh, you're basically eating uh, this small amount of like just low calorie vegetables and a very little protein and uh, that is also keeping you in this uh, semi-fast state so you can eat up to like you know 500 calories a day uh, but if you're doing it like in a very small amount and uh, you're eating these uh, fasting mimetic foods that are very low in calories and very low in uh, blood sugar spikes then uh, you can also at least um, you know uh, get a lot of the, the majority of benefits uh, by doing that okay so you chew on celery or something all day long <laughs> yeah yeah there's a uh, yeah you, you can you can definitely do it at home but there's also like you know this uh fasting making dot kits uh, that are come with the um pre uh, servings or you know a pre-packaged uh, servings of those foods okay. uh, but you know that's, that's a, like a different topic <laughs> yeah for sure okay so why why do we age i mean you know this, besides you know, the kind of the obvious factors i mean why why are we getting older internally i mean obviously externally we're, we're we see that faster but um, what are the kind of hallmarks of aging? Yeah, well, there's quite a lot of uh, things that uh, go wrong when you get aged, uh, you know, when you get older. Uh, so uh, it's things like uh, your telomeres, which are like these, uh, you know, like these protective caps on uh, your chromosomes. Uh, those get shorter, and uh, when they do get shorter, then you start to experience like DNA damage. Uh, one of the things is also like you know loss of muscle tissue, as well as not being able to repair the muscle tissue. Then you get uh, your uh, nutrient sensing pathways go down. So you're able to, let's say, conduct repair processes less easily. Your mitochondria get damaged or they get uh, broken in general. Then there is the uh, cellular senescence or the zombie cells that accumulate. Uh, then there's also uh, just ge genetic instability because of this DNA damage and stuff. Uh, and yeah, like a bunch of different kind of uh, accumulation of all those uh, different factors. And what, what I, you know, as well as like some other people can also think about it is that just like this, uh, the body's ability to uh, read the signals from its environment goes down almost like the, uh, it's, uh, David Sinclair calls it like the information theory of aging, that uh, the body doesn't really, uh, it starts to uh, read the environment and its epigenome in a way that think, thinks that it's old. Uh, whereas if you're younger, then you're able to still, let's say, conduct these repair processes because of having like this uh, prior knowledge. But as you get older, because of this damage and uh, the accumulation of waste, uh, then uh, this ability kind of goes down. Okay. Yeah, actually, I flew out to Harvard and interviewed David on the first season of my podcast. That was really interesting. He was talking about different things because he's obviously promoting, you know, more of a plant-based lifestyle. But on the days that he works out, he will actually consume animal protein and he's, and he's lifting. And um, I, I think he was, he was taking some different supplements. I can't remember off the top of my head, but what he, what he was doing, but what do you think about that type of approach? Cause we, we, we still need to, you know, obviously add muscle tissue. Like, is there, I feel like people are always like, you're only plant-based, you're only carnivore, you're only keto. Like, it, is right. there some sort of hybrid approach that we can actually use to the, increase the benefits of all of these things? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, uh, I think that you can definitely um, take a little bit of information and a little bit of, uh, like, let's say, things from all of those diets. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's say like a vegan diet, uh, it has uh, the benefits of, you know, incorporating a lot of these uh, plant vegetables. Uh, plants are usually very low in calories, so you can basically eat a lot of them without gaining weight and without damaging your health. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And at the same time, uh, they also have like these different beneficial uh, polyphenols and other uh, antioxidant compounds that uh, you know strengthen the body's immune system and uh, cause this beneficial stress to the body. And they also like turn on these things like autophagy and uh, these other pathways in the body because of causing this uh, small amount of stress. Uh, and then there's like the carnivore diet, you know, that has higher intake of protein, animal protein, which is also, you know, good for maintaining muscle mass and building muscle mass. Uh, would you be, let's say, uh, you know, what I, what I think is you, you should eat both. Uh, like you should uh, do some form of uh, some periods, maybe of a bit higher plant uh, intake, some periods of higher animal protein intake. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, optimally, you would still want to eat uh, both for the like the best of both worlds because like uh you know it's hard harder to uh reach your daily protein with uh, a vegan diet and a lot of let's say some studies do find uh, the increased risk of uh, hip fractures with uh just uh, like a vegan diet uh because of like not enough uh, protein uh, and on the flip side maybe like a carnivore diet can also be not optimal for the cardiovascular system if you're just eating meat right. and uh not offsetting uh, and as well as like you know you may also uh get uh, inc- or raise your uh, acidity too much because of eating uh, the animal meat only uh, whereas if you could you could uh, counterbalance that with getting more like bicarbonate uh, from uh, either like mineral water or uh, these uh, plants mm, that makes sense so what about the whole protein argument about you know too much protein for individuals and, and, and it harming you uh, i mean I get a gram to sometimes 1.4 grams per pound uh, of body weight, but I'm, mm. I'm also working out once, sometimes twice a day and, you know, ma- making sure my body's repairing itself. It'd be, what was the argument about ha- having too much protein? Yeah, well, the, the protein uh, argument is mostly uh, related to uh, basically protein promoting this uh, pathway in the body called uh, mTOR. And uh, mTOR is... Uh, the main growth pathway that promotes uh, muscle growth as well as uh, you know cell replication and because of that it is associated with uh, let's say some cancer development because uh, you know it it doesn't really know what to grow it just uh, grows everything uh, the good and the bad so uh, excess mTOR activation in at least you know some cell studies and animal studies uh, appears to be associated with uh, accelerated aging and uh, cancer development but you know um, whether or not it's going to apply to humans is not, not really known. And uh, as well as uh, the thing that, you know, how much mTOR is, uh, you know, too much because uh, you do need it for the good stuff as well. You, ne- you need it for uh, muscle growth. And if you are, let's say, chronically suppressing mTOR, then you yeah, may be uh, at a risk of higher this uh, sarcopenia and uh, frailty. Uh, so, yeah, I think that uh, most of those uh, worries or concerns uh, can be, uh, let's say, uh, reduced if you're doing some form of this uh, time-restricted eating. Uh, because when you're fasting, then your mTOR is really low uh, because you're uh, not eating anything and your body starts to, instead of growing, it starts to like, you know, repair itself and uh, recycle all this uh, junk, which is, you know, the uh, good thing. And uh, the problem is that if you're eating, let's say the standard American diet from uh, sunrise to sunset and even at nighttime, then you are keeping your mTOR elevated all the time, which, you know, theoretically it could uh, lead to some accelerated aging and uh, development of some diseases. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's actually even more like, uh, a matter of eating frequency, not a matter of how much protein are you eating? Because, uh, even like uh, carbs and insulin, uh, raising your blood sugar by eating, uh, carbohydrates will also uh, raise mTOR. So it's not just the protein that raises mTOR. Uh, and if you are eating all the time, then, uh, that is much a bigger of a current, bigger of a concern uh, than actually like the protein aspects. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I do want to touch on that because 
you know, years ago. And this obviously came from bodybuilding culture and uh, athletics where you have an eating five to seven times a day. And, and if you're an, a professional athlete and you're doing hour, you know, several hour long workouts and stuff, I think that's completely different, right? Is they're, they're completely yeah. refuel themselves and, and bodybuilders had to reach yeah. several thousand calories. So they're having these smaller meals, but Still, I, I see people think like, I need to eat five, seven times a day. And then we're snacking dozens of times a day as well. Uh, so what do you think about mm -hmm. consistently just having your digestive system working by feeding your mouth, that, that you know, feeding, feeding your mouth, like putting food in your mouth, like, you know, every yeah. single hour, like, like we see all the time. Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it depends on uh, your physical activity levels. So if you are a high level athlete and you are training a lot or you have like just too many calories to eat per day, then it makes makes more sense yeah, to uh, spread out the uh, eating and have like more frequent meals. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, like the average person who doesn't exercise at all, then for them, there is no, let's say, real physiological reason to be eating any more than, let's say, twice a day or something, uh, because let's, you they... Uh, their energy demands aren't that high and they already have like at least a few pounds of uh, extra weight in their body fat that they can, can carry around with them. Mm -hmm. uh, so like, yeah, frequent snacking itself, uh, you know, the problem with that can be just, you know, depends on what snack you're eating as well. If you're eating, you usually it's something uh, sweet, something that has carbohydrates and stuff that spikes their insulin, uh, spikes their uh, blood sugar levels and, you know, puts them on this roller coaster of, uh, having these uh, swing, big swings in your blood sugar levels. And, uh, you know, that usually leads to additional cravings, uh, just brain fog, tiredness. And you, yeah, you do feel that you actually need to eat more. Whereas in reality, if you were to be staying in a state of uh, this semi-ketosis when you're burning your body fat, then uh, your, those, those like cravings and hunger would also go away. And, you know, people usually spontaneously stop, stop those snacks if they go on, let's say, on a keto diet or they do some intermittent fasting because it's, you know, help teaches their body to uh, start using their uh, body fat for fuel again. Yeah. So what do you think? I know you touch on keto in here. What, what do you think about um, keto diet and, and how could someone go about doing it? Uh, yeah, well, keto uh, definitely uh, can be a good uh, thing uh, every once in a while. So I don't think that it's, uh, let's say, that optimal all the time uh, because it also has like some negative side effects if you do it chronically. Uh, most of the benefits that you get uh, have to do with, again, just more stable blood sugar levels, reduced appetite, reduced cravings, uh, maybe more energy, and uh, yeah, just more stable, stable, uh, stable uh, mood and uh, things of like that. Uh, whereas the negative side effects can, if you let, let's say, do it for uh, weeks and months, then what eventually happens is uh, this um, mild physiological insulin resistance. So that because you're not eating carbs, because you're not you know, you really producing that much insulin anymore, then the body's ability to uh, produce that insulin also goes down a little bit and uh, you become slightly insulin resistant. So if you were to eat like a large dose of carbohydrates uh, after being in keto for weeks, then um, your blood sugar would stay elevated a bit longer for, for uh, a period of time because of that. You're not really producing the insulin to shuttle the, uh, the blood sugar back into the cell. Mm. So um, that is no... In the short term, um, or in yeah, like in the sh in, in the long term, that's not a, like a big a problem, but it is a problem if you're planning to eat carbs. So, uh, right. like a like more strategic, more strategic approach would be uh, to do this keto cyclically, so that on some days you eat low carb, on some other days you eat high carb, uh, at least higher higher carb, so that you would uh, still maintain this insulin sensitivity and uh, metabolic flexibility as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, one thing that you know people really get caught up on and like i'm i'm keto for months and months and months and i guess you're gonna be keto for the rest of your life and never have a carbohydrate 
right. maybe, it'll, maybe it'll be okay. But um, you know, why is it important? And you say metabolic flexibility. So just basically being able to, for your body to switch between burning carbohydrates and fats, right? Um, yeah. Why, why is that going to be important besides just, you know, obviously, um, you know, what you said about possibly being insulin um, resistant, I mean, insulin, insulin sensitive, good thing, but you know, in, insulin resistance, like we don't want that. And people hear insulin resistant, we think diabetics, you know, for the most mm -hmm. part. And I think it's interesting yeah. for somebody to look thin or in shape that's, you know, uh, on keto for a long time. They can't, they can't imagine that they could actually make their body you know, resist that insulin. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's not like a pathological, uh, it's not the same as, um, as a diabetes and uh, actual insulin resistance. So, you know, there's this insulin resistance uh, that happens because of, let's say you're burning uh, ketones and fats for fuel, then uh, your majority of your energy demands, uh, let's say the muscles use will be covered with those uh, fats and ketones. Mm -hmm. And uh, the brain can use uh, ketones up to like 70% of its energy uh, requirements, but some, it does need some glucose as well. And uh, on keto, you produce that glucose from like fats and amino acids. Uh, but if you do with the carbs, then like the immediate response of the body is also to, let's say, the muscles become insulin resistant so that uh, the brain could have access to the glucose. So it's just the muscles are basically covered. They got their energy requirements covered uh, from the fats and ketones. And then they just say, okay, we become insulin resistant so that the brain could have it. So it's not like, you know, insulin resistance per se. It's more of like, like a glucose sparing so that the, the, glu the, the muscles are sparing the glucose for the brain, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one one thing you know you you still need to let's say for uh, optimal you would still want to be like insulin sensitive as well uh, like insulin is not only like a bad thing insulin is uh, you know does promote storage of nutrients but it also helps with like you know muscle growth and things uh, you need insulin for uh, producing like thyroid hormones as well so being on keto long term all the time can uh, just lead to the down regulation of uh, your metabolic rate and uh, thyroid production. As well as like you know, you may become uh, a bit uh, deficient in electrolytes. So uh, you know, if you're not spiking insulin or your insulin levels are too low, then you're not able to, uh, or you're let's say not insulin sensitive enough, then uh, you're not able to shuttle like uh, you know, electrolytes and sodium and uh, magnesium into the cells as well. So you become let's say chronically deficient in them. Even if you are eating enough, you're not producing enough insulin to let's say utilize them uh, properly. Yeah. So is there, is there a point where we would want to spike our insulin levels? Um, you remember back in the day, like they, they said you want to have like um, a high, like, like gummy bears or something after, after your workout <laughs> yeah. to spike that insulin level. Is, is there uh, anything from what you found that when we would want to actually on purpose trigger that insulin spike? Yeah, well, I think the best time to do it, if you were to do, if you were to ever do it, then it would be yeah, like after a training session uh, to replenish the uh, muscle glycogen stores and also kickstart the repair processes uh, by spiking insulin and mTOR. So yeah, you don't necessarily, you know, have to um, have like a massive spike or you don't need to eat a ton of carbohydrates, uh, but it, yeah, like some something something uh, that uh, does uh, elevate your blood sugar or uh, at least elevates the amino acid uh, content in your bloodstream uh, would help to um, do this or to kickstart the rec recovery process. Okay, so what would uh, something good for people um, to eat afterwards, a after that to in increase that recovery process? What have you found to be, you know, one of your go-tos? Yeah, well, uh, I personally, if I, like I do uh, this, ketosis cyclically so uh, on my workout days i usually have uh, more carbohydrates and on my rest days i stay uh, lower carb 
And uh, after my workout, then I'll usually uh, eat something that has carbs and some whole food carbs I prefer, uh, like potatoes, uh, maybe rice or something, uh, some fruit as well with uh, some leaner piece of protein, like some fish, uh, red meat or uh, chicken. Those are kind of good combos to add with the carbohydrates, because like if you, you know, you, uh, spike, you spike your uh, blood sugar, and uh, you also have like the amino acids in there that you get from protein, then the, uh, like the mTOR activation is going to be much higher as a result of that as well, compared to just eating uh, protein alone or uh, carbohydrates alone. So yeah, like in a post-workout scenario, protein plus carbs is uh, the best uh, kind of uh, re recovery meal. Yeah, I, I like doing um, uh, a white rice generally uh, post-workout. Uh, de depends on how much time I have. Sometimes it's white rice with some protein literally in it. And I'll mm -hmm. kind of eat it like a little rice pudding, if you <laughs> yeah. will. Um, people are like, that's disgusting. Like, well, you know, I don't have much time. So if you've got the rice <laughs> yeah. and some protein in it, and I do that. But um, otherwise, yeah, I, I like doing some potatoes and um, sweet peppers and eggs and maybe some, you know, red meat in there um, that's generally mm -hmm. cooked from the the day prior, like a grass-fed, grass-finished. It's, it's, a, it's a good combo. And I just like eating a lot. So I'll eat twice maybe three times a day but it's a big quantity of food just because i'm a i'm an inner fat kid i think <laughs> yeah. i don't want to eat those meals so how can we increase our metabolic rate how can, how can we bring that metabolism up yeah well uh, the biggest you know contributors to your metabolic rate is your just your body weight if you have uh, more uh, mass body mass then your metabolic rate is going to be higher just by virtue of that. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, like muscle mass is still, let's say, healthier way of going about it. So just building more muscle is going to increase your uh, resting metabolic rate so that you would uh, burn more calories even at rest uh, compared to, let's say, doing cardio only. Then uh, you do burn calories more. You burn more calories doing cardio, but uh, you stop burning the calories uh, after you stop exercising. So uh, whereas if you do resistance training and you build muscle tissue, then the kind of muscle tissue is going to start to burn your more calories, even if you're not exercising. So it's a more or less a sustainable approach uh, to weight loss, uh, which, does, which doesn't mean that you shouldn't do cardio. <laughs> you, should, you should do both. But, you know, from a weight loss perspective, like having more muscle tissue and doing resistance training is, uh, you know, just uh, more superior. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, besides that, besides that, uh, besides having more uh, muscle mass is also, uh, you know, eating a diet that is higher in protein uh, because uh, protein burns, the most calories to digestion so uh, you burn 20 to 30 percent calories for digesting protein compared to seven to ten percent of uh, carbohydrates and like one to three percent of fats so you know usually higher protein diets are in uh, at these weight loss studies they're definitely always uh, superior to other diets because of this uh, aspect so you're kind of losing or you're wasting away calories for digesting the protein which is you know a better thing for uh, weight loss Right. So the, and, the thermic effect of food, right? You're just, you know, yeah, yeah. Sim simply digesting that. Now, have they looked at it versus actually chewing the food versus like having a protein shake? Is that matter about the amount of calories that's going to be burnt just from the digestion process? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think uh, I haven't seen specifically that studies, uh, but uh, I would imagine that the chewing the food is going to be uh, superior for at least like the calorie aspect. Yeah. Uh, that you burn more calories for digesting the food that you chew. And uh, because like the uh, liquid calories, they get absorbed uh, definitely much easier. 
and there's less wasting if that makes sense like there's yeah. uh, you know the the, high, the higher fiber content is also going to reduce uh, the uh, amount of calories you absorb so eating and adding like you know vegetables and uh, salads into there as well would kind of lower it down even further uh, just a little bit yeah that makes sense so what how should people train to add muscle tissue to you know increase that metabolic rate you have a specific protocol that you like people to follow uh, well uh, you know, the best, uh, the most effective way of uh, adding muscle tissue is to do resistance training. And uh, resistance training is just uh, referring to, uh, you know, your body is encountering some form of resistance that uh, requires you to exert like near maximum effort. And that can be in the form of like calisthenics, that can be in the form of uh, weightlifting, uh, you know, uh, CrossFit, uh, kettlebells, yoga even is, you know, in, in essence, yoga is uh, resistance training. Um, but yeah, like the, any form of training usually does, but the main, uh, let's say principle of, uh, progressing in resistance training is a progressive overload. So you need to get stronger over time. Uh, that mean, means like adding uh, more weight to the bar, uh, doing some uh, more difficult exercises or even like, you know, increasing the overall volume. So instead of doing like, you know, two sets, you do four or five sets, all those things can be considered almost like a progressive overload so that you're able to, you know, do more work, uh, heavier work and uh, maybe rest rest uh, less as well yeah okay that, that makes sense is there a, a certain um just do two three days a week of body weight training or are they just looking for just that uh kind of mechanical stress and 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 damage that you found anything that's more efficient for uh people yeah well uh, depends on um, where they're coming from or the like level of uh, expertise so like a beginner a beginner a person they can train even like once a week and they can see uh, some progress uh, quite fast because uh, if you're new then like the muscle building signal that you get from uh, resistance training is going to stay elevated even up to yeah like up to a week mm. uh, whereas if you're more advanced then the muscle building signal kind of drops out after day two or so. So it stays elevated for 24 to 48 hours or so. Uh, so like the more advanced you become, then unfortunately, like the more frequently you also kind of need to uh, work out if you're like trying to build, add, add additional tissue. It's like very easy to maintain a muscle tissue and uh, prevent it from losing it. Like you can only train like once a week and maintain it very nicely. But if you want to add, then you kind of need to increase the frequency. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, generally in, in some studies, like a higher frequency uh, training, at least that to a certain point appears to be uh, superior. So training your muscle group three to four times a week uh, usually is uh, a bit better than uh, doing it only once or twice a week. Right. And uh, yeah, that's why like whole, you know for beginners, like a whole body training routine um, can be quite good. But uh, like a bro split, like a push pull leg split can also be good. It depends on um, you know how you structure it. Uh, but yeah, like generally, I would say that at minimum you would want to do resistance training for you know two to three times a week and uh, upward to three to four and going beyond that is going to be probably like too much volume that uh, it's hard to recover from that and you know overtraining is actually gonna slow down the uh, process of building muscle yeah i think people uh, lose sight of the minimum effective dose like we, we just need a, a a little bit more than we did yeah. as opposed to a lot i mean when i was a uh, a 14 year old kid i was in the in the basement everybody would go to bed and i'd be in my underwear and be like doing push-ups and I, like every single day i'm like why is my chest yeah. not growing well form was probably shit too but you know i yeah. was doing the there was like a crappy chest uh fly machine in, in my parents basement and i do that every single day and i just think more and more and more and 
wasn't really there. Um, my eating was not great too. I was eating like Doritos and, and Cheetos all day long. So <laughs> not good. Uh, no, no. What about uh, fasted workouts? What's, what's your preference for that? Is, is there a difference between fasted workouts when you're doing cardio, weight training, and then when do you break that fast? Yeah, well, uh, if I'm uh, doing cardio, then uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, very uh, fine with uh, doing it uh, fasted because, uh, you know, cardio is, let's say, at least like the type of cardio that I do. Like, I don't do a bunch of these uh, crazy uh, Tabata cardio. I do just like regular slow state cardio. Like, I ride a bike, I maybe jog a little bit. So, I'm always like in this aerobic zone, uh, beyond, lower than 65% of my VO2 max. So, just, you know, this uh, regular cruising and it's like, it gets me, you know, gets my heart rate elevated, but it doesn't uh, basically make me gasping for air or such. And I'm fine with doing that fasted because, you know, you know when you're fasting, you're already burning fat and uh, you're not really tapping into your glycogen stores uh, with the cardio either. So, yeah, the cardio is fine to do while well fasted. But when it comes to like, you know, resistance training and the building muscle, then, um, you know, you can do it uh, while fasted every once in a while. But if you're only training uh, weights while fasting, then you may just hit a plateau eventually because, uh, you know, it's uh, hard to, um, you know, when you're fasting and you're training on top of that, then you are being very catabolic. So to say you're breaking down the muscle tissue at a higher rate because you haven't eaten. Uh, whereas if you ate before training, then uh, you would have like uh, this uh, stream of amino acids in your bloodstream that uh, reduce the muscle breakdown and at the same time help with the recovery process. So, you know, optimally you would want to have like at least some amino acids in your bloodstream if your goal is, uh, you know, purely muscle growth and uh, muscle strength, mm -hmm. uh, because that would be just, you know, better for the, uh, the kind of uh, weightlifting side. Uh, so what I do is usually like uh, I either eat something small before I work out, uh, or I would uh, have like a protein shake during my workout with maybe like amino acids in there as well. And uh, that would, you know, kind of overcome this, um, this limiting step. Sure. So, I mean, it, it, it's possible to add muscle tissue if, if, if you're doing it fasted, it just, you've got to be you know, a lot more aware of, you know, the probably yeah. workout nutrition as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, yeah. Like depends on where you're coming from. Like a big beginner can definitely do it, but if you get more like the advanced uh, weightlifting, then uh, it's going to be increasing harder. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Now you talk about the, uh, the anabolic and catabolic score of food in your book. What is that? Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's something that I, um, kind of created to rank these different foods of how they affect the processes of autophagy and uh, mTOR. So uh, the more a food activates mTOR or the more, more it spikes these anabolic processes in the growth, then the higher it's, let's say, uh, anabolic score is going to be. Mm -hmm. And usually those foods are um, the foods that have uh, this very bioavailable protein, like a whey protein is uh, like liquid. It's very easily absorbed. And it also has all the amino acids responsible for... Uh, muscle protein synthesis, and it does spike mTOR as well. So that is, you know, probably the highest uh, anabolic uh, food uh, in the world because of that. And uh, other foods related to that would be maybe like uh, eggs, whole eggs, because eggs also have um, the full spectrum amino acids and they are especially also high in uh, leucine, which is like the key amino acid uh, responsible for uh, muscle protein synthesis. Uh, so... You know, th those foods are usually the ones, uh, these anabolic that promote the growth, like uh, meat, uh, chicken, fish, and uh, things like that. But as well, uh, you know, the carbs, the carbs can also be somewhere, but they're not as high as uh, just the uh, protein. Uh, and on the other end, you know, the foods that will lower anabolic score 
are the ones that uh, basically, uh, instead of promoting growth, they promote these uh, catabolic pathways in the body, like autophagy, as well as uh, maybe ketosis. So those foods are mostly like these uh, plant polyphenols, uh, cruciferous vegetables, even coffee and tea. Uh, those are you know, these more catabolic foods uh, because they uh, promote the uh, catabolic pathways. And uh, yeah, like on, on, the lower, on the lowest end, you can find things like, you know, berberine, which is uh, actually like a supplement, but it is like, an, you, you can find berberine in nature. It's like this herb uh, that is uh, lowering your blood sugar and uh, lowers insulin and lowers mTOR quite a lot. So it actually mimics a lot of these, you know, anti-diabetic drugs like metformin and uh, rapamycin, but it's, you know, found in nature. So it's uh, almost like a food. And yeah, it's a very, uh, very catabolic food in the sense that it down-regulates all the growth pathways. So uh, berberine, would that be something that people should take, you know, maybe if they're doing like a, a fasted day or looking for more of a, you know, uh, autophagy process? Yeah, potentially, like um, uh, it, it is best to take if you are trying to maybe lower your blood sugar or maybe after like a meal that you have carbohydrates, uh, because it uh, it's not the best to take if you're, eat, if you're trying to, you know, build muscle and you're eating something that is supposed to grow muscle. Uh, so yeah, like I personally do take a berberine, uh, every once in a while, I take it maybe only if I, if I ate like a higher carb meal or yeah, if I'm having like this, a uh, fasting mimicking day that I'm trying to promote the Tawaji more. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's the best time to take that. Does that come in a supplement form too? Like a, like a pill or you have to get it from, um, I mean, what, what is it like a leaf? What does it look like? Yeah, it's mostly, yeah, the easiest way is to get it like as a supplement, uh, like on, there's different kinds of it, uh, mostly on, on Amazon and like the dose is usually like two to two to three or 400 milligrams is kind of the optimal dose. Like too much is definitely not good. And you, you may get like a hypoglycemic by taking too much. Okay. All right. So uh, is there any difference when we're talking about you know, fasting males versus females and any indications that you know, the female should really worry about? Yeah, certainly like, um, you know, usually um, uh, females, are more sensitive to like the stressors of uh, fasting and uh, they may get more uh, hypothyroid uh, more easily because of that and uh, but it doesn't mean that they can't do it like they can still do it uh, but they just need to pay more attention to how they react and uh, like i would imagine that yeah they uh, you know they shouldn't do it they shouldn't do like these extended fasts uh, that often uh, either or that long for that matter so that uh, you know what I almost almost like to think is that uh, females can still do fasting, but they you know cut or they break the fast like a few hours before uh, before men would, and uh, they can still see like a lot of benefits. Okay, so is there a, a window that's a little bit better for them as opposed to like a sixteen eight or you know a twenty hour fast? Is there a better window that makes a little bit more sense? If I mean obviously everybody's different, but if we're going to generalize mm -hmm. for females, what what would be the best option for them? Yeah, I think uh, like everyone uh, shouldn't uh, eat uh, over the course of, you know, uh, 14 hours, so to say that, you know, they, they would want to fast at least 12 hours every day uh, to basically get some benefits of this time machine eating and uh, not be uh, eating immediate, immediately before bed. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, like for females, 14 hours is pretty good. Uh, and it's not like that, that different from uh, a 16 hour fast uh, either. So yeah, 14, 10 is uh, almost like a good... Um, you know, a good way to bridge that. 
Okay. Now you you touched on circadian rhythm and, and not eating before bed. I did. Why is that important to make sure that we regulate this circadian rhythm? And what are a few things that people um, can you know, incorporate you know, today that can help them? Yeah. Well, circadian rhythms are this just this uh, like a master system inside the body that uh, controls uh, virtually all all metabolic processes and uh, also hormone, hormonal production. So every cell and every organ has its own uh, circadian clock that is connected to the uh, master clock inside the brain. And uh, that master clock is uh, detecting mostly like the signals from the environment, like light signals, as well as like temperature to, uh, you know, understand what time of the day is. And based upon that information, it's going to either like release cortisol in the morning or in the evening before bed, it's going to start to produce melatonin, the sleep hormone, so that you would, you know, start the process of recovery and uh, sleep. So uh, those circadian rhythms are, you know, really important. And uh, research finds that uh, mismatches in those circadian rhythms uh, are associated with uh, these chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, uh, neurodegeneration, and uh, cancer even. So yeah, you don't want to be um, misaligning your circadian rhythms uh, deliberately, like shift work is a pretty uh, bad thing for your health because of that. And uh, likewise, you know, eating at night can also, you know, disrupt these uh, signals. So humans are supposed to eat, you know, at least during the daytime or not at least like, you know, immediately before bed uh, because, because of that, you know, the food is also one of those signals that, that controls the circadian rhythms and uh, eating frequently kind of uh, prevents prevents like you know the repair processes that are supposed to happen at certain times of the day hmm. okay so is, what time should you cut off eating two three hours before bed when it starts getting dark is there a, a certain protocol yeah I, I like to think that uh like uh, two hours is probably yeah, like the last would be the optimal time to uh, cut it off uh, because you know the sun sets at different times of the day and in different locations of the world. So, in uh, in Estonia or Finland, you would have to stop eating at like you know three p.m. in the winter time. So you know that's uh, kind of a different scenario. So I think yeah, like two hours before bed is gonna be just enough. And in the morning, you would want to wait as also like maybe two hours after waking up before you start eating, uh, because you know in the morning you get this uh, surge in cortisol, the stress hormone, and uh, you know. It's not, it may not be the best time to eat food if you have like elevated stress hormones mm -hmm. and uh, like planting that cortisol response with eating as well can be, uh, you know, just causing like chronic fatigue later in the day and kind of mismatching some of the hormones. Okay. Well, let's talk about the morning here. How, how do you drink your coffee strategically like a motherfucker? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the... Uh, I don't drink actually coffee like immediately in the morning um, because of the same uh, cortisol response. So your, your body is supposed to uh, make you very energized uh, first thing in the morning. The uh, cortisol is uh, like considered a stress hormone, but it's also good for, uh, you know, waking you up as well as actually kickstarting like fat burning. Mm. So uh, eating or drinking uh, coffee or getting caffeine uh, on top of that natural surge in cortisol can just, you know, overstimulate you and you can become like really wiry and jittery because of that. So I'm, I would um, wait, you know, until maybe 10 p.m. or something uh, until I would have my first uh, coffee uh, just because of the, that's when the cortisol starts to drop down and it's kind of more safe to do it. Of course, you can still have, you know, coffee first thing in the morning, but you would have to be maybe a bit more uh, careful with how much are you drinking and uh, yeah, whether or not it kind of overstimulates you because some people are, are like very fast metabolizers of caffeine. Uh, whereas others are slow, so uh, slower metabolizers, they can just, uh, 
they can they can have like this uh, high caffeine uh, elevated in the bloodstream for a lot longer time, and that can be a lot worse for them. So you're waiting until about 10 a.m. Does that depend on when you're getting up, though? I mean, I'm I'm up at five or five thirty every single day. I mean, we're as opposed mm-hmm. to other people, you know, sleep until eight o'clock. You know, is there a certain amount of time after getting up that the coffee makes the most sense? Uh, yeah, like everyone has their own subjective circadian rhythm uh, to a certain extent. So yeah, like uh, different chronotypes. Some people uh, wake up early. Some people wake up later. Uh, so and their let's say hormone production would also be uh, differ maybe like a few one one to one one hour or so uh, so yeah if you wake up at five then uh, usually the cortisol let's say let's say you do uh, start to produce the cortisol at like four and you, it wakes up at your five peaks at maybe six and uh, by seven it should be you know back to uh, baseline normal and uh, then it kind of goes uh, on for the rest of the day from there okay so hour and a half, two hours after waking up might be a, a good time to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, th- like that. Okay. Perfect. Let's see. I'm, I'm doing it right then. I, I, I do that. <laughs> sometimes I put some MCT in my coffee, sometimes a little, uh, little Himalayan sea salts, which is actually quite delicious. All right. So yeah. where, where do you hope, uh, hope the future um, of, you know, health is, is heading towards? Um, well, uh, I do uh, think that uh, I, I, this, I, I hope that uh, this uh, Western medicine would become more personalized uh, instead of being like this, uh, just uh, try, instead of just trying to uh, create this average avatars of people and uh, trying to uh, fix those avatars. We have to kind of look at the, each individual personally and uh, what is their subjective condition, what is their genetics even, what's their past history, et cetera. And then, you know, try to provide the solutions, uh, like a customized, personalized uh, healthcare. Uh, that was like the biggest, uh, I think, hurdle at the moment that, you know, this just the, you know, most of the uh, recommendations just don't work for a lot of people. And uh, yeah, instead of trying to hammer it down, we have to kind of find like a different solution. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I just did a post on uh, my Instagram about I'm considered overweight according to BMI. You know, I'm yeah. <laughs> 6'3", 210 pounds and I have like 7% body fat. But I've got a twenty score of a 27, which I'm almost obese. And once I hit like 30, I think that, that that's the, the BMI score. So I mean, yeah. it was developed by insurance companies just to overgeneralize and do a calculation on people that don't work out at all. But it would be nice to see, you know, the more individualized approach, even with that, like, oh, you can run a six minute mile and you've got single digit body fat. Okay. And even though like your BMI mm-hmm. score is high. I mean, I, I know people that are athletes that will, you know, we're trying to do a, um, get a life insurance plan. And they did a multiple day fast just to cut water as fast as possible. So they could actually get on, you know, within their BMI score, which is crazy. Right. You know, uh, that yeah. Like that. It would really love to see a more, even individual, even if we're just like even three groups of people, that'd be great. But right now it's just overgeneralized. And, you know, I really love to see that comprehensive approach. Well, yeah. Seem, where can, uh, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, well, uh, my website is uh, seamlund.com and I'm seamlund on all the social media platforms. Okay, yeah, you're, you're all over. That's how we found each other. And I appreciate you coming on and uh, I'll have to have you on again with one of your other 50 books that I'm sure are, are, are coming out. <laughs> all right, I, I'm Joey Thurman. There's another episode of the Fatter Future Podcast. Remember, don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y, be a part of the future. Cheers. <laughs>